Welcome to the She Did It Her Way podcast, a collective of interviews with top female entrepreneurs from around the globe who have done it their way. These women are disruptors, savvy, courageous, confident, innovative, decisive, unconventional, and humble. Our ladies have proven business models, have taken risks, and have failed only for success to follow. Join us as they share their stories, behaviors, habits, mindset, thought processes, and what it is like to be a woman who means business. And now, here's your host, Amanda Bolin. It's another fantastic week of life. I'm so excited for you guys joining us in the She Did It Her Way podcast. We've got another fantastic interview coming at you guys this week. But first, we have a special favor to ask. We have put up a awesome and lovely short survey on our website. And it's quite fun. If you stick around until the end, we might have even referenced a Disney Channel character. For you millennials out there, when you take the survey, you'll know what I'm talking about. But anyway, it's super fun. Head on over real quick. Cheatedherwaypodcast.com and fill her out. And a huge thank you to those who have already done so. You guys rock. Again, it's all about wanting to bring inspiration to you guys. And so we want to know how we can always improve and get better and bring that to you guys. Transitioning now into the podcast today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Heather Hudson, who is an executive producer at Black Sheep Productions. It's a company that manages the production of corporate meetings, special events, and trade shows. If you guys have ever been to a corporate meeting, any special event or a trade show, you know that that stuff is so crazy and it's an extremely intense time for those who are organizing it. And so Heather shares with us what it's like to handle those stressful situations and how her and her team get it done. Also, before we actually get into talking about how Heather runs her role as the executive producer at Black Sheep, we actually talk about how she got to that position. and. She has a background in theater and she took quite the unexpected route and faced many ups and downs as she searched for the career that best suited her. And what I love about this interview is it is so truthful, so raw, and so vulnerable. And we talk about the five years of darkness that she went through and what really brought her out of those struggling years. But the best part, as a theater girl at heart, this leading lady does not forget the entertainment aspect throughout our interview. and brings her vibrant personality the whole way through. So stay tuned as we learn how to navigate life by accepting mistakes and failures with Heather Hudson. Oh, girlfriend. (laughs) Yeah, there's three of you. You guys are doing some major, like, big, big things. So tell us then from the beginning, your path and your journey, where you went to school, what did you study, and then how did you end up getting recruited to work at Black Sheep? Okay. Um, I started at Florida State University. Well, let's go back even further. When I was eight years old, I auditioned for The King and I at the local theater, and I got in, and I fell in love, and I stayed on stage um, all the way through. I went to college, got a, a Bachelor's of Fine Arts in theater. I was one of 300 people that auditioned, and two of us got in that year, me and Robert Tucker. So it was a very exclusive program, and you had to have, you know, had to have some discipline and some talent to, to get in there. And so that was cool. Did that right out of there. Um, I got a job in a touring theater going, doing one night stands. So it was four of us in a van touring the country. Um, go to, we go to a country club, set up our set, uh, eat dinner, put on our costumes, do the show, strike the set, put it back in the van, go to the hotel, go to sleep, get up in the morning and drive to the next place. How long did you do that for? 
nine months. Oh my gosh. I'm sure. Yes. Like, what was your favorite city that you got to visit? I would have to say um, the the West, the Southwest, we were able to do the Painted Desert and the Grand Canyon. Oh. So that was really cool. Um, I didn't take as good a notes as our uh, Kyle. Kyle kept a really good journal. So he knows where we were, what pictures. Like, I look at these pictures and they're just this grand adventure that the four of us went on. And, you know, that was 25 years ago. And I'm still close to two of those, two of the three of them. Um, one of them disappeared, but Kyle and Jessica, we stay on, stay in touch on Facebook and, you know, there's like deep love there, you know? So that happened. And from there, uh, we, Kyle and I, we both auditioned for a children's theater in San Antonio and he and I were in the first paid ensemble for that theater. It is still going uh, again, you know, 20 years later, it's uh, the magic children's theater in hemisphere park in San Antonio. And it was cool because we were the first, we were the first ensemble that was full-time theater, uh, full-time actor, full-time ensemble. And that was cool because, um, we worked our butts off. We were there seven days a week from six o'clock until six o'clock, you know, sometimes and on the weekends we would do evening shows and then to make a little at the Irish pub across the street. Of course, when you're 20 something, you can do that now. <laughs> There's no way I could do that. So that was cool. Um, then I went to um, vacation with my dad and I met Captain Wonderful and sold everything I owned and moved to the Caribbean. Oh my gosh. That was cool. Um, Tell us about that. <laughs> I'm like, that is super fantastic. Yeah, it's something that you, again, something you can only do when you're in your 20s. And um, Captain Wonderful, his name was Ron, like Captain Ron. You remember the movie? <laughs> I'm not, no, uh, no. What is Captain Ron? It, it was it was kind of a satire of this. Anyway, um, it was a funny movie. And Captain Ron was not a good sea captain, but my Captain Ron was a good sea captain. And uh, he had long flowing hair. He looked like Fabio. And um, oh, fantastic. I mean, yeah. that helps. So it's like, yes, I'll pick up and go to Car the Caribbean. Yeah. So we he was really concerned because he was an actual sailor and I was totally fibbing about my sailing abilities. Um, but I could cook, and that was what they were looking for. So we got a job on a charter boat that charter boat that was owned by George McCarrow, the guy who owns uh, Rare Hospitality, which is the parent company for Bonefish Grill and Longhorn Steaks. So um, that was cool. We we went all over the Eastern Caribbean and also down into um, Saint Vincent and the Grenadines, and we would take people on uh, week long charters. So you get up in the morning, you clean the boat. You make make breakfast, um, feed people, clean it up, go to the next place. It was it was a really cool experience. Um, I wish again, I wish I had taken had a better journal and taken better notes of where I was. Like again, I got these pictures of these beautiful islands, but I can't really say where we were at any specific time. I do know that Antigua is probably my favorite of them. Mm. So we did that. Then I came back and I was like, now what? And that's when I got into the industry that I'm in now. It's having lunch with a friend of mine who is a theatrical director in Orlando, John Dodonna. And John said, why don't you do what I do? And I had only known him as a theater director. And he, I said, okay, what do you do? And he told me about, um, about doing pipe and drape for uh, corporate theater. I'm like, corporate theater? What's that? Yeah. 
Um, so he told me a little bit about it and trial by fire. I moved to Atlanta in September of 1998. I had a little bitty warehouse and it was me and a guy named Hollis and Hollis was the installer and I was supposed to get the business up. And when I started the, when I came in, I knew nothing about the business, nothing about pipe and drape, nothing about staging, nothing about any of it. And I just learned from doing it. Um, I drove trucks, I packed trucks, I rolled carpet, I hung drape, I installed staging. I went to networking events. I marketed at everything. Um, there are people in Atlanta now that still know me as Heather from ASI, even though that was back in 1998. And I did that for two years. Um, and when I left, we had moved from this little beady um, warehouse space to a 12,000 square trucks. I had 14 guys full time. Oh I was the boss lady and I had an assistant and a warehouse manager. We grew that sucker, um, but I was done. Um, that was cool because it gave me an opportunity to run a business without any of the risk of owning it. The the owner was in Florida and he would call me and he would talk to me and he would mentor me and we would talk every day almost. But the decisions were mine to make. And at the end of the day, I built something really cool. Um, as a woman in a male-dominated industry with hourly employees that I couldn't afford to pay more than eight bucks an hour. So you know how reliable that is. Right. And they had weird schedules. Like I would give them a schedule to say, I want you to be here at you know seven o'clock in the morning and you might be done at 10. You might not. It just depends on if we get any other gigs between now and then. So it was really stressful. Um, so really quick too, explain to myself included like pipe and drape and corporate theater. Like, so we can picture in our minds, like what that looks like. Okay. Corporate theater is where, let's say IBM is going to have a sales conference. They're going to invite all of the salespeople from all over the country to a specific city. Say we're going to do it in Atlanta at the Westin Peachtree Plaza. So they're all going to come in and they're going to go into the grand ballroom at the Westin. And in that room, you're going to have a stage. You're going to have screens. You're going to have PowerPoint on those screens. You're going to have video on those screens. You're going to have the guy come up and talk. And when he talks, there might be some music that plays as he walks up onto the stage. Um, all of that is considered corporate theater. So I got my start doing the black drape that goes around the screens and installing the stages. So that's like the bottom of the, the production food chain. But that's mm -hmm. it's a great place to start, right? Absolutely. Well, you get you learn you learn everything, right? You get yep. the bottom bottom up experience. Okay, cool. So from there. Um, I got, I, I was burnt out because I was working all the time and, you know, I'm getting calls from the sheriff saying, uh, we see that your van was on the side of the road. We impounded it. I'm like, my what? <laughs> van's been impounded because Taiwan took it out when he wasn't supposed to. And now I got to chase Taiwan because he's got a corporate credit card. It was really, really challenging. Oh my gosh. It was it was silly, challenging, and it was cool. Like I said, I got the opportunity to act like a business owner with zero risk. I had zero risk, but I got to make all the decisions. And and at the end of the day, it was cool. What was like the what was your biggest learning experience or takeaway from from that? <sighs> Building a a process. I think process was the best thing that I did and the experience of building that process. Like I wrote the uh, training manual of how to hang drape, drape appropriately. And while that doesn't seem like a big deal, um, in my industry, video technicians do not like to, ha to hang drape. And if you don't hang drape nicely, it can really make your show look kind of 
mediocre. So having that nice finish on your drape is really important. Um, and that was the product differentiator that I would sell when I would go out and try to get people to use us over the people that over Cherry, Bob Cherry editor in town. And it was because we, we paid more attention to detail. So, you know, I wrote that training manual. Um, I wrote the policies and procedures, you know, if you do this, then this will happen. Um, that was probably the, the biggest was learning how to create a process that could be replicated. Fantastic. And did I mention I have a degree in theater? Like I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, I'm sure that people are probably thinking, wait, theater. And then, well, okay. Yeah. That's, but I, that's what I love about your story is that there's all these different pieces and you just really went with the flow of like what made sense at the time. So then after you, left the company or what was the transition from working with um, ASI to what was the next step after that? I went over to work for an audiovisual company that had been one of my customers. So uh, that was an interesting thing too. Again, these are all male, this whole industry is male dominated. It was me and uh, one other lady in the city selling audiovisual at the time. And I didn't, again, I didn't know anything about audiovisual. So I'm taking online courses about impedance and amplitudes and, and it's making my right brain just like, cause it's all left brain stuff and it's all technical. But again, you know, you do what you got to do and try, I'm trying to learn as much as I can. And in that time, um, the ownership of that company had a real dis- distrust for, um, for salespeople and they changed my market, uh, four times in six months. And, so it's no wonder that I didn't get any real traction. It, the sales process in this industry is 12 to 18 months because people have annual meetings, right? So if you miss their annual meeting, you got to wait for it to come around again. <laughs> a lot of patience. Yeah, and a lot of cultivating those relationships. And, you know, at, at the time, I knew all of, the, um, all of the in-house guys and all of the hotels. So all draped. So I, I knew a lot of people, but they were now my competitors because I was also selling audiovisual products and services. Um, so after 9-11, that Monday, I was one of 11 people let go. And that entered a very challenging time in my career. I was out of work. I did not work in my industry for two years. Mm. And that really affected my self-esteem, obviously. Um, what were you doing in lieu of? since you weren't working in your industry at the time? I was catering. Okay. How did you find catering to be what you went into? Well, I had that background in food from, um, from working on the boat and it's my avocation. I love to cook. And at one point in time, I thought that maybe I would be a restaurateur, like a restaurant owner or, or own my own catering company until I worked in the catering kitchen, um, at Coca-Cola and, well, I'm getting ahead, but um, <laughs> I like making dinner for 60. I don't like making dinner for 600. Oh so my that, gosh. I don't want to be a caterer. <laughs> You're like, eh, no. I like food, but not that much, you yeah. know? So if you don't, if you wouldn't mind too, you had mentioned that when, like after 9-11 and things being let go and you said it took a hit to your self-esteem, if you wouldn't mind sharing some of that experience with us because I know from 
like my own personal standpoint of being someone who's an independent consultant that sometimes when the work dries up and you attach yourself identity to your work, it can get a little, it can get it like in a lull. So I would love for you just to share some of that story with, with our listeners. Yeah, it was, um, I call those, those, the dark days I had, like I had five years of just darkness and that was the beginning of that, of that time. Um, I would get up and I would sit at my computer and I would try to find a job. And I realized that unemployment was only going to last so long. And I can't even remember how I met uh, the catering company. His name was Jerry Diltz and the company was Jerry Diltz and Associates. I'm somewhere. Oh, I was getting my nails done. And he his nails done too. Oh. <laughs> right? And he... I, I, he's like, I need hands. I'm like, I got hands and they paid cash under the table. Oh my gosh. Oh. So I was able to still continue to collect my unemployment while making a little bit of extra to supplement. And that was interesting because, um, I'm not the type of girl who can just, I don't want to sound arrogant because I'm not, I just, I, I'm not a, I'm not a very good follower and I have a tendency to kind of step up a little bit. Sure. And with my experience in the events industry, it wasn't long before Jerry and David, his partner noticed. And so they <laughs> put me, they put me as like the person answering the phone and, and making the menus for their customers. And then I would go out on the gig and I would be the leader for the catering crew. So catering, I don't know if you've done it, but it's extraordinarily hard work. You got to, you know, you got to, you got to pull the food and you got to put it in the van. You got to, again, with the van, you got to <laughs> the van and then Taiwan, you got to pick up the empty plates. You got to wash all the plates. It's hard work. And I remember changing clothes because you go in and teach, you know, t-shirts and shorts to do the load in. And then you change into your penguin suit because, you know, you wear black pants and a tuxedo jacket and your apron and your tuxedo shirt and your apron. And I remember changing clothes and thinking, this is not me. This is not me. This is not, this is not who I am. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing. And I was crying in the stall of this bathroom and like the Atlanta history center or wherever this gig was. And I just was, I kind of was like, I just don't know what's going to happen. And, um, I got the opportunity to interview for a boutique agency called the wow factory. That's, I believe they're still in existence. Um, and it was, had been, um, with a large organization called carabiner and anybody in my business knows about carabiner carabiner got really, really big. They went public and then they had too many accountants running the business and not enough people who knew show business. And eventually it crumbled and all those people are either, or they're still here in the business, but there's no big conglomerate right now that owns everybody. Well, PSAB is getting that way, but that's a whole other story. So these three guys from Carabiner, um, one of them was a woman, um, Stacy and her husband and their third party, um, Matt. I convinced them that I could sell production, which was, oh, girl, that was a lot of tap dancing to get that job. But oh I was gosh. desperate. I, I wanted to work in the industry again. And that was cool because... Um, I got the opportunity to learn how to work in an agency and it was definitely a communications agency. And I was cold calling in November of 2001 and in November of 2001, nobody was doing events. Mm. Nobody only imagine. Yeah. Uh, I was there for 14 months. And in that time, 
I started with zero and built a contact list of over 700 and I uncovered $4 million worth of business, but I wasn't able to actually go get it because they ran out of money to keep paying me. So they let me go. Dang. Now I'm again, I'm like, what am I doing wrong? And I got another opportunity to work for another guy and that was in the trade show industry and everybody in my industry has got to do trade shows at some point in time. I hated it. I hated it a lot and I didn't like the guy I worked for. He was not a nice person. Um, eventually, the company let him go and because they didn't have anybody for, for me to support, they let me go. So now I'm out of work again. Oh my goodness, girl. And I think what I was doing was choosing, I wasn't being I wasn't doing the due diligence for the person that was hiring me. I was so busy trying to get the job that I didn't do the work to see if I even wanted that job. Like, do I want to work with these people? And I think that's just because I was so young. I was like 30 years old, maybe, maybe 28. I mean, it was, I just didn't know. And again, come from a theater background, I, I don't know anything about business. Um, so and to go back to, you said you found yourself and you're crying and you're in, when you're in the catering and you said, you know, this isn't, this isn't me. And yeah. yeah. And as you went through and we're still in what you call the five years of darkness, when you were going through these roles to the next role to the next role, was there any sort of friction against the gut telling you saying like, Hey, Heather, this isn't, this isn't right. Or, but I guess that probably goes back to what you're saying is that now looking back, you didn't think that you did the due diligence, but, uh, what do you think kept you of like not looking at the due diligence aside from knowing you just wanted to get a job? Was there anything else? I I think that part of it was honestly, it was immaturity. Um, a sense of entitlement. Um, when you say entitlement, what do you, you mean? Of course you want me. Everybody wants me. I'm fantastic. I'm oh. going to be making six figures by the time I'm 30. The world owes me something. And I, I legitimately had that attitude. I really did think that I was going to be making six figures by the time I was 30. And there I was, 30, and looking for a job again. Mm. So, I, you know, I think that you know, there. Yeah, I'm, I'm a person of faith, and at that time, I was not. Um, and I believed that I was running on self-reliance, that I was like, I'm going to take care of this. If, it, if, it's up to, if it's going to be, it's up to me, 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 me. It's all about me. And it wasn't until um, that I let God let go of that second job that I was like, okay, God, I can't do this. Obviously, I'm making all these wrong choices. So I really need you to take over my career. I need you to take this over because I keep screwing this up. And not just my career, but like my whole life. Mm -hmm. I was just making all of these bad choices. And <laughs> and so I, I surrender to my God. And he's got this great sense of humor. You know, like I make, the, I make this choice. And like four days later, I lose the job at MC Squared. I'm like, <laughs> What? <laughs> no, I, yeah, that, it's always, it's always, uh, yeah, you definitely have to laugh at it sometimes because you're thinking, um, well, okay, I wasn't expecting that, but I'll go with it. Yeah, I guess I'll roll with this. Yeah, I, I said you could be in control, so I guess this is what you want. And for two months, um, I didn't have a job. And I wasn't, 
really all that stressed out about it because the money just kept showing up. I, you know, the company said I had severance, so they put severance in my account, and then I must have had vacation. They put vacation in my account, and then I think there was some supernatural stuff going on because of that whole surrender. I mean, honest to goodness, I'm like the math didn't work for two months. I was okay, and then um, a friend of mine told me about an opportunity at the Coca-Cola company working in their catering department. And I was like, I don't know. It's not in the industry. It's not what I do. It's a lot less money. And this woman said to me, um, I don't even know her very well. I just met her through some friends. And she said, why don't you take the job and you can look for another one while you got it. And I was like, Oh, that makes sense. (laughs) Dummy. So I took the job and I worked in the catering kitchen for six weeks. That's when I discovered I don't want to be a caterer. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's so that's so smart though, because sometimes you have to do things in order to say, "Yep, nope, don't want to do that, don't want to do that." Yeah. So um, from there, uh, after I learned all the food and how it goes, and I think they just needed somebody to cover in the kitchen. Uh, they moved me upstairs and answered the phones, and I answered the phones and I took sandwich orders, and it was a very humbling experience. And that's when I really concentrated on treating other people the way that I want to be treated. I had a verse on the phone that said, treat other people as though they are better than yourself. It's something that Paul says, like one of his letters. Mm -hmm. And I had that on the sticky note on my phone. And I practiced, um, I practiced my customer service skills. I practiced saying, is there anything else I can do for you today? And they say, no, I'm good. I'm like, all right, thank you. Thank you for calling. Um, Answering the phone with a cheerful voice and trying really hard to stay in that, place of service like how can I be of service and that was the beginning of the journey that I think I'm in now with staying right sized not getting too uh, too full of myself because I, I, I mentioned earlier that I could do that you know left of my own devices I can get really self-absorbed um, and I think we all can I don't think it's specific to you know Heather Hudson I think that people get self-absorbed um, yeah, absolutely. and if if we all like took that attitude of how can I help you, we would the society would just be so much better. But I can't control that. I can only control me. <laughs> the entire world would be aligned, and then I don't think. Yeah, I don't think the world would know what to do. <laughs> right? Andy Stanley preached on that this last weekend. It's crazy. Yeah. So from there, um, I worked at Coke, and um, I had a baby, and while I was on maternity leave, I started looking for my next job. Like, like I was gonna, and here's something cool. Like I, it was an unplanned pregnancy and Coke has the most amazing benefits ever. I didn't pay anything out of pocket to have that baby, not even a copay. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I was totally taken care of. It was, um, at the time it was extraordinarily difficult, but now I can see that it was really, um, it was like an incubation period coming out of that darkness and starting to become the woman that God was making me into, you know, molding me to be. And I'm still on that journey, obviously. I won't be done until I, obviously. But um, I got a job at, I got a referral from one of the people at Coca-Cola to uh, PSAV, where I went and worked there for seven years and Started off as a producer. I'd never produced a show in my life. I knew who the producer was because that was my target for selling audiovisual and selling pipe and drape. And the producer is in charge of everything. Your job is to gather all the pieces, 
put them in the order, make sure that the budget is there, make sure the timeline is there, and make sure that you deliver this project on time, on budget. And oh, by the way, it's got to be flawless when it, when it happens live. How long does it take typically to plan an event? Because I know you guys work with Sher Sher Sherwin-Williams and, and some other big names. I mean, how many hours would you say goes into planning an event and putting it on? It really depends on the size. Um, for Sherwin-Williams, we spend a lot of time in their offices. So I would say we probably spend six months with them. Uh, in the past with PSAV, I was doing real high volume. So I could probably put a show together in three to four weeks if necessary. We prefer not to. We prefer to have time, but it can be done. Mm -hmm. It just depends on how much you're doing. If you're doing all of the creative, like starting from what are you guys going to say to uh, it's an opening video, it's an opening entertainment act, here's your keynote speaker, here's the look of the, of the set, here's the look of the PowerPoint, here's the overall thematic of the whole thing. All that stuff um, takes a little longer mm -hmm. than just, okay, here's your set, here's your stage, you know, dude's coming on. At 8.01, he's going to talk for 30 minutes. He's going to transition to, you know, the director of operations or whatever. So it just depends on what services we're offering as to how long it will take to put something on like that. Um, it, it's a cool thing, and it's an, it's an adrenaline junkie. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I've witnessed, I've witnessed the shows, and I've worked a few, but I know that I, to be in the behind the scenes, such as yourself and in the industry that you work in, I can just only imagine the planning and preparation that goes into it. And so the now at Black Sheep, where you're currently at, how has your role evolved, changed, and then what are you doing now? That's a really cool question. Um, when I, I had to leave, well, I, I got to back up a little bit because there was another learning opportunity and how I left PS. Um, I was being mentored into a creative director position, which is what I've been trying to do for, as soon as, as soon as I knew there was such a thing, I wanted to be that. The creative director is the one who figures out how to say whatever it is that the customer wants to say and whatever way is the most compelling to their audience. So it's pure creative that, it, that just like totally jazzes my actor side, you know, and the craft of building a show. Um, that's like, yay, but you can't just like say I'm a creative director. You actually have to be mentored into it or go to school for marketing or advertising, that sort of thing. Um, so I had been mentored into it, and they gave me the job on a Thursday, and then on a on a Monday they said I couldn't have it. What? Yeah, after two years of working towards this goal, um, and it, you know the, 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 there was some money involved, but it wasn't the money. It was it was a betrayal because I was it, it was my mentor who gave me the job and then took it away. And I felt like he had betrayed me personally and professionally. And I said to him, well, you know, that means I'm going to have to find another job. And I don't think he believed me <laughs> because I had been so loyal. You know, I'd been so loyal and had been, I worked all the time. I, you know, I'm a single mom, you know, I'd, I'd get my kid off to school. I'd Work, I'd, I'd go to the office, I'd work, 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 I'd come home, I'd do stuff with my kid, I'd put my kid to bed, and I'd work some more. I worked so hard, so long, and I was, you know, all about it. And I don't, I would really leave. And so I started looking for a job. And in the meantime, like, I met Lisa back in 20, 1999, 2000. She was one of my customers when I worked at ASI. And 
I remember then when I worked at the Wow Factory, I hired her to produce the only show that I sold. And I remember, you know how they talk about providential relationships? Mm-hmm. I went up to her room after a show and her Bible was sitting on the table. And I used to be a Bible reader back when I was a teenager. But at this point in time, I had just kind of left all that alone. And that was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. That guy. I know that guy. I should probably do that. I didn't, but it, was, it the seed was planted. Mm-hmm. And that was like 2001. And she handled herself so well. We were having a, a conflict between um, the venue coordinator and us as the production team. And she went up there. She had a printout and said she was going to do something. And then she wasn't doing it. And she she opens up her book and flips it flip, 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 back in the days when you had paper. And she shows the lady the email. And the lady still wasn't going to do what she said she was going to do. And so she closed her book and she said, are we done here? And the woman said, yes, I think so. And she just said, she just got up and walked out. I was like, wow, she is so cool. Followed <laughs> Lisa out. And Mark, um, I had hired him to help me when I worked at PSAB on a tour. And we went all over the place doing um, this. It was called Banquet University for Hilton. And we did all these Banquet Universities. And I got to know him, working with him, because I didn't... I didn't want to go to all these places. So I hired somebody else to go to all these places and got to know him um, and, and traveled with him and worked with him. And so I had an inkling of his personality and what he was like. So I got a call out of the blue, you know, now I'm, you know, fast forward to where we're looking, I'm looking for a job, get a call out of the blue from Mark and Lisa. They're both on the phone. They're like, Hey, do you know any producers looking for work? And I'm like, uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. And they said, well, we're getting ready to go on vacation. Oh, yeah, we're polite conversation, right? Well, where are you guys going on vacation? Oh, we're going down to Destin. Really? Because I'm going down to Destin, too. So we went all with Destin, and, and we met up for dinner one night, and we talked more about the, the, about the company and about the vision that Mark and Lisa have for the company. And and what Black Sheep is all about. And that was intriguing to me because Black Sheep is not profits driven. We're not sales driven. We are driven to make a difference in our communities and in the lives of the people that we interact with. And that's a differentiator. Uh, we really care about the people that we interact with. Um, you know, Mark cares that I'm a single mom. Mark cares that somebody just needs to take the kid to karate practice at the end of the, at four o'clock. So he doesn't call me at four o'clock unless he needs to. Um, Lisa gets it. Um, she knows that when we work, we work and when we're not working, it's okay. Um, and that work life balance <clears throat> was really hard for me to get a grip on because, um, I am such a hard worker. And like I said, when I was with PS, I would work all the time and just take breaks for life. And now I work some of the time and I live a lot of the time. And I remember having a conversation with Mark and I was like, I don't feel like I'm doing enough and you guys are paying me. And he's like, you work when it's time to work. It's okay. That's part of what being a black sheep is about. I'm like, okay, if you say so. (laughs) I love it. So then now tell us, so now you're at black sheep. Now I'm at black sheep. You're working with Mark and Lisa. Yeah. Tell us about your role now. So I came in and I said, um, well, what's our, you know, do we have a capabilities presentation? No. Oh, what's the website 
look like? Well, we need to update the website with new headshots. What, but what's our products that we're offering? So, uh, I started asking these questions and Mark and Lisa and I started to devise a, a more clear voice to the market as to what specifically we offer, you know? So now we have three buckets of surface that we offer to our customers. We offer strategic and creative direction, which means we're going to find out what you want to say and help you say it in a way that's most compelling to your target audience. We offer meeting management, which means that we have CMPs and also event managers on staff that will help a customer with their food and beverage, with their registration, with their site selection, with their um, anything that's got to do with meeting planning services. That's not my bailiwick, uh, but my partner, Jennifer, it is her bailiwick. So we can ask Jennifer anything about meeting planning if she knows the answer. And then our third service is production services, which is pretty much what I do every day for a living, which is making sure that your audiovisual is spec'd properly, that you have everything in that spec that you need. We, we'll, we shop it. We get the best price. We leverage our relationships when we need to. Um, we build the run of show, which is a minute-by-minute thing of what happens on that stage. We build um, a speaker brief telling the speakers when they need to be, where they need to be. We organize the assets. We can go so far as to create assets if they need it. We've got on-site graphics artists on staff. We've got teleprompter operators. Anything that needs to happen in that ballroom, we've got it. So the the whole breadth of services of Black Sheep is soup to nuts, but what's interesting and what's different is that we don't have to do it all. We can do just what the customer needs. And that to me speaks of that, that heart of a black sheep, that heart of service. So that is that whole little spiel is something that I partnered with um, the partners to develop that we can take to the market. And we are hoping that if, if we can hit our deadlines, we're hoping to launch our new refreshed website uh, middle of next week. So you can go check it out at blacksheetproductions.com. Yeah. And and by the time this airs, then it should be up and the new site should be up and running, which would be fantastic. And I, um, you had said something like, okay, so let's say someone's listening to this and they love event management and project management. I mean, how does someone just naturally get into the industry if they're looking for a career change and they think it might be something that they would be interested in exploring? That is such a good question. You can go to college and get a hospital. (sighs) management and an event management degree they offer that but you know what there is no place to learn how to be a producer the only way you can learn to be a producer is from another producer and I learned from a wonderful woman in South Florida her name is Christina Gafana I should give you her information because she is also an entrepreneur and she's awesome yeah she taught me how to produce a show and now, when I have anybody who's interested, like one of our meeting planners, she's interested in producing a show. And so when we work together, I clue her in, I pull her with me and I'm like, this is what I'm doing. This is how I do it. Um, that's the only way to do it. So we as an organization, Mark and Lisa and our, another one of our team members, Sam, we started talking about how can we bring information to the industry so that people who want to get into production have a place to go to get the information. Um, so we're talking about creating an event called the event event mm. to offer that kind of education and training. And that's the meeting- fantastic. Yeah. We're, we're, that's one of those ideas that's still germinating as to how we do that. We don't know yet. So it's just like back there in the back of the 
creative hopper. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, we have started um, a blog for anybody who's interested in learning about production and audiovisual, and it's the producer's page on our website. Um, and, and the blog section is called the producer's page. Yeah. How to write a show flow, how to um, manage your um, your audiovisual budget, how to compare your audiovisual budgets. Who are all these people on my audiovisual budget? Who, what does a technical director do? What does a project manager do? What's an A1? What's a V1? What oh is gosh. a master electrician? So all of that information is out there. And as far as I know, Black Sheep's the only company doing that, uh, offering that information. And I think it's because um, we producers like to hold our cards close to our chest because we want you to think that it's magic. So you have to hire us. Um, it's not magic. It's just experience, mm-hmm. you know, and we did a show recently where the lighting board went down and that has never happened to me in my life. But I do know that the show has to keep going and that the next thing is the most important thing. The next cue needs to be hit. Yeah. Because this t- show tanks because of something that happened in the past, because we're too busy thinking about what happened in the past, we can't recover. So we have to move forward. And that's what I said on headset. I said, the guys, this is bad. I know. But the next thing that's the most important is the next thing. So stand by for speaker transition, you know, and I delivered the standby for the next queue. So that was, yeah, I'm curious. I mean, it's not, a, it's definitely, I would, from observing, is a pretty intense, high-powered situation. So what has gotten you, which it sounds like it's standby for the next thing, anything else that, like, you would recommend to people, regardless of what the type of situation is, but knowing that it's an intense, high pressure to, like, how do you deal with that pressure. I I stay here in this moment. This moment is the most important moment. The lighting board went down like five moments ago. Right now, right now the lawn guy is going around my house. Right now I'm talking to my computer. Right now everything's okay. Mm. So I have to stay right now. That's my personal technique of staying here. And I've been told that that's where God is. He's right in this moment. I, yeah, that's definitely something that if, yeah, cause it's easy to get trapped into different moments and thinking about what you could have done differently and how you want to control the future, but you can't. So it's staying, staying in the moment. Um, anything else like advice you would give someone for our listeners that are also going through maybe that peaks and valleys of transitions and not really knowing exactly where they're at or have gone through the, this is not what I meant to be like, how, what, what advice would you offer up to them? The one thing that's constant is change. Whatever is happening, it's going to change. It's going to pass. Even the good stuff, nothing is forever. So that's, that's something that I keep close to my heart is this too shall pass. Whatever's going on, it's going to change. It's not going to be like this forever. And if there is going to be a change, I have to, I am responsible for taking that action to make that change. I can't just sit here and expect my bills to get paid. If I'm not willing to go out there and try to rustle up some cash. Um, you know, they, they say you need to trust God. Well, 
God's not going to write the check and send it into the power company. <laughs> no, no, he's not. You got to write the check. So be willing to to be willing to take a chance, to be willing to just one of the things we we're talking about in our production call yesterday was like, just let's just start, just start and we'll figure it out as we go, but start and make mistakes and it's okay. Like nobody is perfect. We can recover from any mistakes that we make. Honestly, they're the only, the only thing we can't recover from is something that kills us, mm-hmm. you know? And I heard in a meeting um, recently, I can't remember who said it, but the guy said, fail, fail fast. So whatever you're doing, if, you're, if it's going to suck, make it suck fast so that you can get on to the, to the thing that's going to work. I think Edison said something like, I didn't have um, you know, a thousand failures in creating the light bulb. I just had a thousand things that didn't work and to find the one that did, you know. So I guess it's reframing what it looks like. That's super, that's all good advice too. So I have a couple rapid fire questions too for you as we wrap up. If you could give a title to your life, like a movie title, what would you call it? (laughs) You only get one title. Stick around kids, it only gets better. (laughs) Okay, stick around kids, it only gets better, perfect. What did life teach you yesterday? Yesterday? Mm-hmm. What's one thing life taught you? Um, to remain humble so that I don't miss the opportunity of helping somebody. Okay. And then the last one is what is one bad habit you're still trying to kick? Procrastination. <laughs> Join the club with everybody else in the world, right? Right. I mean, I, I got up early, I worked out, I had breakfast, and then I played on Facebook for like 30 minutes before I actually started working. Like, come on! I know, I know. It's so, some days it's like, you can be really good and self-control, and the other days it's like, I just want to zone out for a little bit, so don't mind me, but I love it. And the last question is how, um, like, what what is one book that you've read that you feel really has impacted just your thought process and the way that you go about things that you do. I think most recently is uh, daring greatly. She is one of my favorite, favorite favorites. And the quote that she gives is from a quote by Teddy Roosevelt. And I can't quote it. You can Google it, but basically it's saying, Oh, the yeah, I know which one you're talking about. You know, basically saying that, the fight is for the people that are willing to get out there and fight for those people who have the courage to dare. I'm so sorry for the leaf blower guy. Oh, you are totally fine. We, and I, I just did this, I did an interview yesterday and I say, you know what? We catch our women when we can and they are busy women. And so we just go with the flow. Yeah. Um, so what, what Brene Brown's, she's talking about that Teddy Roosevelt quote about, um, being, in the being in the arena and being willing to fight inside of that arena. And if, if you're not in that arena and if you're not willing to get bloody and get messed up and get beat down, then you really don't have any say as to what I'm doing. If you're not willing to get in here and fight with me. So having that mindset of being in the arena 
um, and knowing that it's hard and being prepared to be vulnerable and facing that that fear that people aren't going to like it and just being okay with that uncomfortableness. I think that is the thing that allows us to grow um, and to become more. And the way I see it is if we quit growing, then we quit living. You know, you're on your way to dying if you're not growing. Mm-hmm. So every day it's like trying to to be uncomfortable. Like talking to you is a little uncomfortable for me because I don't know how it's going to sound, right? <laughs> I know. That's what everyone says. But I think we've everyone's done a fantastic job. But you're right. Ben Franklin said, too, that – People often die at the age of 25, but they're not buried until 75 because we stop growing. So, yeah. Well, Heather, I sincerely appreciate your time and energy today. And I know our listeners are going to just get so much out of all your wisdom and, and your story. So I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time and, and talking to me. Thanks for tuning in to the She Did It Her Way podcast. Did you like this episode? Head on over to iTunes.com to leave us a rating and a review. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out SheDidItHerWayPodcast.com where you can subscribe to our email list so you can receive the inside scoop on our latest episode released each Monday. Now, do us a favor and go make it a great week. Tess, this is Banane. I've literally recorded this intro probably a handful of times. So this is my last one and I hope this works out. So here we go. Beep.